Chapter Eleven of Maria or the Wrongs of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. A gentleman of large fortune and of polished manners had lately visited very frequently at our house and treated me, if possible, with more respect than Mister Venables paid him. My pregnancy was not yet visible. His society was a great relief to me, as I had for some time past to avoid expense, confined myself very much at home. I ever disdained unnecessary, perhaps even prudent concealments, and my husband, with great ease, discovered the amount of my uncle's parting present. A copy of writ was the stale pretext to extort it from me, and I had soon reason to believe that it was fabricated for the purpose. I acknowledged my folly in thus suffering myself to be continually imposed on, I had adhered to my resolution not to apply to my uncle, on the part of my husband, any more. Yet, when I had received a sum sufficient to supply my own wants, and to enable me to pursue a plan I had in view, to settle my younger brother in a respectable employment, I allowed myself to be duped by Mr. Venables's shallow pretenses and hypocritical professions. Thus did he pillage me and my family, thus frustrate all my plans of usefulness. Yet this was the man I was bound to respect and esteem, as if respect and esteem depended on an arbitrary will of our own. But a wife being as much a man's property as his horse, or his ass, she has nothing she can call her own. He may use any means to get at what the law considers as his, the moment his wife is in possession of it, even to the forcing of a lock, as Mr. Venables did, to search for notes in my writing-desk and all this is done with a show of equity, because, forsooth, he is responsible for her maintenance. The tender mother cannot lawfully snatch from the gripe of the gambling spendthrift, or beastly drunkard, unmindful of his offspring, the fortune which falls to her by chance, or, so fragrant is the injustice, what she earns by her own exertions. No, he can rob her with impunity, even to waste publicly on a courtesan, and the laws of her country, if women have a country, afford her no protection or redress from the oppressor, unless she have the plea of bodily fear. Yet how many ways are there of goading the soul almost to madness, equally unmanly, though not so mean? When such laws were framed, should not impartial lawgivers have first decreed, in the style of a great assembly, who recognised the existence of an etre supreme, to feel the national belief, that the husband should always be wiser and more virtuous than his wife, in order to entitle him, with a show of justice, to keep this idiot, or perpetual minor, for ever in bondage. But I must have done. On this subject my indignation continually runs away with me. The company of the gentlemen I have already mentioned, who had a great acquaintance with literature and subjects of taste, was grateful to me. My countenance brightened up as he approached, and I unaffectedly expressed the pleasure I felt. The amusement his conversation afforded me made it easy to comply with my husband's request, to endeavour to render our house agreeable to him. His attentions became more pointed, but, as I was not of the number of women whose virtue, as it is termed, immediately takes alarm, I endeavoured, rather by rowry than serious expostulation, to give a different turn to his conversation. He assumed a new mode of attack, and I was, for a while, the dupe of his pretended friendship. 
I had, merely in the style of badinage, boasted of my conquest, and repeated his lover-like compliments to my husband. But he begged me, for God's sake, not to affront his friend, or I should destroy all his projects, and be his ruin. Had I more affection for my husband, I should have expressed my contempt of this time-serving politeness. Now I imagined that I only felt pity, yet it would have puzzled a casuist to point out in what the exact difference consisted. This friend began now, in confidence, to discover to me the real state of my husband's affairs. Necessity, said Mr. S., why should I reveal his name, for he affected to palliate the conduct he could not excuse, had led him to take such steps, by accommodation bills, buying goods on credit, to sell them for ready money, and similar transactions, that his character in the commercial world was gone. He was considered, he added, lowering his voice, on change as a swindler. I felt at that moment the first maternal pang. Aware of the evils my sex had to struggle with, I still wished, for my own consolation, to be the mother of a daughter, and I could not bear to think that the sins of her father's entailed disgrace should be added to the ills to which women is heir. So completely was I deceived by these shows of friendship. Nay, I believe, according to his interpretation, Mr. S. really was my friend, that I began to consult him respecting the best mode of retrieving my husband's character. It is the good name of a woman only that sets to rise no more. I knew not that he had been drawn into a whirlpool out of which he had not the energy to attempt to escape. He seemed indeed destitute of the power of employing his faculties in any regular pursuit. His principles of action were so loose, and his mind so uncultivated, that everything like order appeared to him in the shape of restraint. And, like men in the savage state, he required the strong stimulus of hope or fear, produced by wild speculations, in which the interest of others went for nothing, to keep his spirits awake. He one time professed patriotism, but he knew not what it was to feel honest indignation, and pretended to be an advocate for liberty, when, with as little affection for the human race as for individuals, he thought of nothing but his own gratification. He was just such a citizen as a father. The sums he adroitly obtained by a violation of the laws of his country, as well as those of humanity, he would allow a mistress to squander, though she was with the same sang forehead consigned, as were his children, to poverty, when another proved more attractive. On various pretenses, his friend continued to visit me, and observing my want of money, he tried to induce me to accept of pecuniary aid, but this offer I absolutely rejected, though it was made with such delicacy I could not be displeased. One day he came, as I thought accidentally, to dinner. My husband was very much engaged in business, and quitted the room soon after the cloth was removed. We conversed as usual, till confidential advice led again to love. I was extremely mortified. I had a sincere regard for him, and hoped that he had an equal friendship for me. I therefore began mildly to expostulate with him. This gentleness he mistook for coy encouragement, and he would not be diverted from the subject. Perceiving his mistake, I seriously asked him how, using such language to me, he could profess to be my husband's friend. 
The significant sneer excited my curiosity, and he, supposing this to be my only scruple, took a letter deliberately out of his pocket, saying, "'Your husband's honour is not inflexible. How could you, with your discernment, think it so? Why, he left the room this very day on purpose to give me an opportunity to explain myself. He thought me too timid, too tardy.' I snatched the letter with indescribable emotion. The purport of it was to invite him to dinner, and to ridicule his chivalrous respect for me. He assured him that every woman had her price, and with gross indecency hinted that he should be glad to have the duty of a husband taken off his hands. These he termed liberal sentiments. He advised him not to shock my romantic notions, but to attack my credulous generosity and weak pity and concluded with requesting him to lend him five hundred pounds for a month or six weeks. I read this letter twice over, and the firm purpose it inspired calmed the rising torment of my soul. I rose deliberately, requested Mr. S. to wait a moment, and instantly going into the counting-house, desired Mr. Venables to return with me to the dining-parlour. He laid down his pen and entered with me, without observing any change in my countenance. I shut the door, and giving him the letter simply asked whether he wrote it or was it a forgery. Nothing could equal his confusion. His friend's eye met his, and he muttered something about a joke, but I interrupted him. It is sufficient. We part for ever. I continued with solemnity. I have borne with your tyranny and infidelities. I disdain to utter what I have borne with. I thought you unprincipled, but not so decidedly vicious. I form a tie in the sight of heaven. I have held it sacred even when men, more conformable to my taste, have made me feel, I despise all subterfuge, that I was not dead to love. Neglected by you, I have resolutely stifled the enticing emotions, and respected the plight of faith you outraged. And you dare now to insult me by selling me to prostitution. Yes, equally lost to delicacy in principle, you dared sacrilegiously to barter the honour of the mother of your child. Then, turning to Mr. S., I added, I call on you, sir, to witness. And I lifted my hands and eyes to heaven, that, as solemnly as I took his name, I now abjure it. I pulled off my ring and put it on the table, and that I mean immediately to quit his house, never to enter it more. I will provide for myself and my child. I leave him as free as I am determined to be myself. He shall be answerable for no debts of mine. Astonishment closed their lips, till Mr. Venables, gently pushing his friend with a forced smile out of the room, nature for a moment prevailed, and appearing like himself, he turned round, burning with rage to me. But there was no terror in the frown, excepting when contrasted with the malignant smile which preceded it. He bade me leave the house at my peril, told me he despised my threats, I had no resource, I could not swear the peace against him. I was not afraid of my life, he had never struck me. He threw the letter in the fire which I had incautiously left in his hands, and quitting the room locked the door on me. When left alone I was a moment or two before I could recollect myself. One scene had succeeded another with such rapidity, I almost doubted whether I was reflecting on a real event. Was it possible? Was I indeed free? Yes, free I termed myself, when I decidedly perceived the conduct I ought to adopt. How I had panted for liberty! 
liberty that I would have purchased at any price, but that of my own esteem. I rose and shook myself, opening the window, and methought the air never smelled so sweet. The face of heaven grew fairer as I viewed it, and the clouds seemed to flit away obedient to my wishes, to give my soul room to expand. I was all soul, and wild as it may appear, felt as if I could have dissolved in the soft balmy gale that kissed my cheek, or have glided below the horizon on the glowing descending beams. A seraphic satisfaction animated, without agitating my spirits, and my imagination collected, in visions sublimely terrible or soothingly beautiful, an immense variety of the endless images which nature affords, and fancy combines, of the grand and fair. The lustre of these bright picturesque sketches faded with the setting sun, but I was still alive to calm the delight they had diffused through my heart. There may be advocates for matrimonial obedience, who, making a distinction between the duty of a wife and of a human being, may blame my conduct. To them I write not. My feelings are not for them to analyse, and may you, my child, never be able to ascertain, by heart-rending experience, what your mother felt before the present emancipation of her mind. I began to write a letter to my father, after closing one to my uncle, not to ask advice, but to signify my determination, when I was interrupted by the entrance of Mr. Venables. His manner was changed. His views on my uncle's fortune made him averse to my quitting his house, or he would, I am convinced, have been glad to shaken off even the slight restraint my presence imposed on him the restraint of showing me some respect. So far from having an affection for me, he really hated me, because he was convinced that I must despise him. He told me that as I had now had time to call and reflect, he did not doubt but that my prudence and nice sense of propriety would lead me to overlook what was past. Reflection, I replied, had only confirmed my purpose, and no power on earth could divert me from it. Endeavouring to assume a soothing voice and look, when he would willingly have tortured me, to force me to feel his power, his countenance had an infernal expression, when he desired me not to expose myself to the servants by obliging him to confine me in my apartment. If then I would give my promise not to quit the house precipitately, I should be free, and, I declared, interrupting him, that I would promise nothing. I had no measures to keep with him. I was resolved, and would not condescend to subterfuge. He muttered that I should soon repent of these preposterous airs, and ordered tea to be carried into my little study, which had a communication with my bedchamber. He once more locked the door upon me, and left me to my own meditations. I had passively followed him upstairs, not wishing to fatigue myself with unavailing exertion. Nothing calms the mind like a fixed purpose. I felt as if I had heaved a thousand weight from my heart. The atmosphere seemed lightened, and if I execrated the institutions of society, which thus enable men to tyrannise over women, it was almost a disinterested sentiment. I disregarded present inconveniences, when my mind had done struggling with itself, when reason and inclination had shaken hands and were at peace. I had no longer the cruel task before me, in endless perspective I, during the tedious forever of life, of labouring to overcome my repugnance, of labouring to extinguish the hopes, the maybes of a lively imagination. Death I had hailed as my only chance for deliverance, but, 
while existence had still so many charms, and life promised happiness, I shrunk from the icy arms of an unknown tyrant, though far more inviting than those of the man, to whom I supposed myself bound without any other alternative, and was content to linger a little longer, waiting for I knew not what, rather than leave the warm precincts of the cheerful day, and all the unenjoyed affection of my nature. My present situation gave a new turn to my reflection, and I wondered, now the film seemed to be withdrawn, that obscured the piercing sight of reason, how I could, previously to the deciding outrage, have considered myself as everlastingly united to vice and folly. Had an evil genius cast a spell at my birth, or a demon stalked out of chaos to perplex my understanding, and enchain my will with delusive prejudices. I pursued this train of thinking, and led me out of myself to expatiate on the misery peculiar to my sex. Are not, I thought, the despots for ever stigmatised, who in the wantonness of power commanded even the most atrocious criminals to be chained to dead bodies? Though surely those laws are much more inhuman, which force adamantine fetters to bind minds together that can never mingle in social communion. What indeed can equal the wretchedness of that state, in which there is no alternative but to extinguish the affections or encounter infamy? End of chapter 11